Hello and welcome back to Pan Am. I'm your host, Amber, and this is part two of a two-part series all about Coco Chanel. Now, last episode, we examined how the architecture of Paris, notably the Place Vendôme, possibly left its mark on Chanel and more specifically on her very famous perfume, Chanel Number no. 5. But it's hard to talk about Chanel without mentioning her incredible life story. So in this episode, that's exactly what I'd like to do. So let's get into it. Now, Chanel is considered a model of female independence, success and good taste. But while her business acumen cannot be denied and her incredible ability to drive fashion and style, her personal life and her moral code reveal a more troubled and troubling person. So let's start at the beginning. On August 9th, 1883, Gabrielle Chanel was born. She was the second of six children to Albert Chanel and Eugenie Jeanne Devol. She was born in a charity hospital in the town of Saumur in the Loire Valley. Her father himself was one of 19, and he was an itinerant street vendor, peddling mainly kitchen tools and farm equipment, and by all accounts he was very charming and a bit of a player. He met her mother, Eugenie, although she went by the name Jeanne, so that's what we will call her, when she was only 16, and they had a brief tryst, which left the young woman pregnant. Albert had already hot-footed it out of town, but he was tracked down by Jeanne herself and her family, and very, very pregnant, they all insisted that he do the right thing by marrying her, which he didn't. He agreed to live with her as if they were married, but he didn't marry her, although he did recognise the child, Julia, Gabrielle's older sister. I don't really suppose Jeanne had much choice in the matter, and so she had to make do with the situation. Now, not long after Julia was born, Jeanne found herself once again pregnant, this time with baby Gabrielle. Albert was away working as usual, so she gave birth alone at the charity hospital. Now, in France today, and maybe it was the same back then, once you've had a baby, you have to register that birth and their name within three days. And I've had a baby, and three days after giving birth, the last thing I feel like doing is hopping up and sorting out some French admin. And neither did Jeanne. And so someone else took on the task of registering baby Gabrielle at the Mary or wherever it is that they had to do that and because of this a couple of mistakes were made so first of all there was a spelling mistake instead of writing her name down as Chanel they wrote Chasnel with an S which was inaccurate but it was also inaccurate because her parents weren't actually married and she should not have been able to take her father's name but this was how it all started. Anyway, her parents did ultimately get married and they stayed together and had four more children, although one of them died in infancy. So in total, there were five living children in the family and they lived a very nomadic lifestyle, sort of going from pillar to post. The children weren't put in school. They were often left with relatives as Jeanne went off to find Albert and then would call for the children later. It was complicated and definitely from what Gabrielle says, uh, a little bit lonely. And then disaster, tragedy struck the family. When she was only 11 years old, her mother, who was only in her 30s, died. 
Her father, Albert, was saddled with this big family of small children and he wasn't equipped or able to deal with them and so he separated them. The two boys were sort of sent out to be farmers' helps and were basically just sort of labourers for free. Um, And they were only 10 and 6 years old, which feels so young. Gabrielle and her two sisters, one older, one younger, were sent off to the convent orphanage where they were left to be brought up by the nuns and they never saw their father again. In later years, Chanel would reinvent her history, uh, telling a story of being brought up by strict wealthy aunts and her loving father sending her gifts often and striving for a better life in America. But this was purely fiction and it seems that she was prone to a little bit of fiction and story making throughout her life. Now, the shock of going from this wild nomadic life to the strict and structured life of the nun-run orphanage must have been extreme because, of course, she was expected to follow rules. She had to go to school, something she'd not done until now, and learn all the basics like reading, writing, maths and, and the rest of it. She also learnt French because until now she'd been speaking the local patois, which was very usual, especially in the country. But the fact that she learnt French quite late in life meant that she was never really very comfortable writing it. And so that we don't have an awful lot written by Chanel herself. A lot of what she said, but not a lot of what she wrote. And I mean, I understand her because I find writing French very daunting indeed. She also learnt a lot of life skills like housekeeping and cooking and, of course, sewing because these poor girls were destined to grow up to be housekeepers or cleaners or shop assistants and the nuns were preparing them for this lifestyle. But, of course, sewing, such a key important skill which is going to define her life, meant that she was spared a life of being a sort of assistant or housewife and, of course, became the fashion icon we know her today. Now, upon leaving the convent, she did indeed start working as a seamstress, but she was keen for adventure. And so she started also working in the evenings in a cabaret. Now, originally, she started off as a poseur, a poser, which means she would stand behind the main act and sort of look pretty. And then one day, the main act was off or sick or whatever, and she got her chance to snatch the headline. And so she went up and she sung. Now, she didn't have a great voice, but she had an awful lot of charisma, and so people really warmed to her. And she became famous for singing two songs in particular. So one song was called um, Qui a vu Coco? Like, who has seen Coco? Qui a vu Coco au Trocadéro? I think it was called. Um, And it was Who has seen Coco at the Trocadero? And it's about a little dog called Coco who is lost. And you can see... Audrey Tattoo singing this in the film Coco Avant Chanel and uh, it's very, very cute. Another song that she sung was uh, Coco Rico, which is the French for cock-a-doodle-doo because in France, animals also speak a different language, which is very confusing if you're reading children's books. But both of these songs that she sung in her very limited repertoire have the word Coco and she started being called Coco very early. So this nickname Coco comes from there, although I do think she spun a story that it was her father that gave it to her as a pet name because that does sound a little bit more sweet rather than she was singing in some sort of cabaret. Anyway, so this is where Coco comes from. Now, 
Chanel wanted to perhaps make her fortune on the stage. She obviously was looking for more, but she didn't have a great voice. And so this really wasn't going to happen for her. But it didn't matter because through working at the cabaret, she ended up meeting someone very interesting. She caught the eye of one Etienne Balsain. And he was this sort of very wealthy um, textiles heir and she became his mistress and he lived in this huge chateau and so she went and lived with him and learnt to do all the things that people who live in chateaus do. So, you know, riding and uh, loafing and chatting and kind of having a good time. But she was not interested in just doing that. She wanted more. You know, she was restless. I mean, Coco Chanel, she's famous for her incredible work ethic. And, you know, she was really looking for something else. And she impressed Etienne's friends because she would make these gorgeous little hats and they all thought they were really fantastic. And just a word, we talked about her reinventing herself and making up stories of her past. And I think that's understandable because if you were an impoverished orphan, you know, growing up uh, without your family and, you know, struggling to make ends meet with a very uncertain future. And then you find yourself in a chateau with the elite. You've got to fit in, don't you? You've got to try and make it work. So I think she was obviously trying to, you know, find her, find her way. And, you know, she did a great job because, like I said, she really impressed them with these hats. And she persuades Etienne to let her open like a little hat atelier and he does and so she opens up this little um i think it was an atelier at 160 boulevard malzerbe in paris and you can go there today there isn't anything you can't see anything there's a huge red door and you know behind this door inside coco was making her hats and word got around and people really liking them because they were new and they were unusual and they were as with everything she did, pared down and sort of simple and yet very, very elegant. But it is through Etienne that she meets the person who is the love of her life and, you know, he's really interesting. And this is uh, Captain Arthur Edward Capel and he was known as Boy. I don't know why. And he was sort of fabulously wealthy. He was English. Uh, I think his mother was French. He's a politician, a tycoon and a polo player. And I think that's how they first met because he was coming over to uh, Etienne's chateau to play polo. And he sort of becomes the love of Chanel's life. And they start this affair. And it's Boy who ends up financing her first boutique, which sold both hats and clothes. And it wasn't in Paris. It was in Deauville. So in 1930, she opens this little shop in Deauville. Now, Deauville is not far from Paris. Sometimes people call it the 21st arrondissement because there's 20 arrondissements in Paris and Deauville is just outside. It was popular back, obviously, in 1913 with the sort of wealthy and well-to-do. And it's still popular now with the wealthy and well-to-do. It's very it's very chic. It's only a couple of hours on the train outside of Paris. So, you know, if you want to go away and get out of Paris and go to the seaside for a weekend, Deauville is the place to go. Opposite Deauville is Trouville, and I actually prefer Trouville. I think it's a lot more fun and cool and not quite as chic. And there is this painting which I would, if you have a little Google and have a look at it, I'll put a picture of it up on Instagram. But there is a painting by Manet called um, Promenade à Trouville. And obviously uh, Manet was painting before 
Chanel, you know, this is an older painting. But it's a really interesting painting because you can see the seafront, you can see these houses in the background. This one particular turreted house sticks out, uh, which is still there today. And you can actually stay in that house if you want to. It's on Airbnb. And you can kind of see the way that people are dressed, especially the women. And they're really sort of gussied up, you know, they're wearing corsets and long dresses and things like this. And at the time that Chanel was over in Deauville in 1913, there was still this kind of fashion, these corsets, these heavy clothes, these big hats. And, you know, she doesn't like any of this. You know, she she's all about simplicity. And so she starts making these clothes which are really fluid and simple and easy to wear and are inspired by men's clothes, by boys' clothes. So they had things like dress shirts and sweaters and um, these sort of straight lines, no corsets and, oh my gosh, clothes with pockets. Everyone loves pockets. And, you know, people really liked this. And she was using really simple fabrics like cotton and jersey and wool and it was soft and it was new and people were really, really loving this. And she had this great marketing idea again because she's a queen of marketing. She would get her models which was actually her aunt who was very, very young and one of her sisters to wear these clothes that she had designed and they would go walking around the promenade and all, you know, looking gorgeous because they were gorgeous but looking really sort of comfortable and relaxed, you know and people were impressed and they wanted to go and get these clothes and so, you know, it really, really worked very well. And then, of course, what happens a year later? It's 1914. It's World War I. So... War comes along and a lot of people want to get out of Paris and they escape going to their country homes or their second homes and a lot of them come to Deauville and Chanel decides to keep her shop open and this is actually a great move because, you know, what do you do when you fear for your life? You go shopping. And her shop was just opposite the really gorgeous Hotel Normandy, which again is still there in Deauville and you can stay at and they hold the big American film festival there. And so people were coming over to her shop and they were buying her clothes and they were feeling really comfortable. And it was also good for two other reasons, because a lot of these women who would have been wearing corsets and really complicated clothes needed a maid to help them get dressed. But now in war, those maids are either in Paris or working or doing other things. So, you know, they didn't need them. They could just get dressed on their own and look elegant and chic. And, you know, it's war. I think people wanted to look a bit more simple. You don't want to be wearing big flouncy dresses when, you know, people are fighting for their lives on the front. So she made an absolute fortune during the war in her shop. And she even opened a second shop over in Beiritz, which is another seaside town, which is also very swanky. So Chanel is doing great. And so by the time the war ends... She comes back to Paris and by 1919 she's registered as a couturier and she establishes her Maison de Couture at 31 Rue Cambonne. It is still there in Paris and you can go and visit the Chanel boutique today. Things professionally were going so well for her but personally it was a lot more complex and in fact Chanel's whole life seems to be overshadowed with this dual story of professionally doing so well and then privately, personally, having a much more rocky and often tragic story, but also very exciting as well. So at the same time that she's doing so well, she and Boy 
are facing troubles. Boy ends up getting married. So he doesn't marry Chanel. Despite her storytelling, she is not, you know, well-bred. And he marries a very typical English girl from, you know, good background, all that sort of stuff. But by all accounts, they carried on their affair. And then, tragically, on Monday, the 22nd of December, 1919, allegedly en route from Paris to Cannes, for a Christmas rendezvous with Chanel, Boy is killed when the tyre in the Rolls-Royce that he was being driven in bursts and the car crashes. His chauffeur survives, but not him, and he is instantly killed. He's buried in the Montmartre Cemetery, actually, in Paris, should you want to go and visit him and pay your respects. Now, Chanel was devastated and said she could never love again, although she definitely had very many more lovers, and she goes into deep mourning she cuts her hair and she wears that style actually this short hair for the rest of her life of course it causes sensation everyone loves it thinks it looks amazing so like I said she did go on to have many more lovers and interesting affairs with influential and important people we can't go into all of them but let's think about some of them so one of these people was composer Igor Stravinsky. And Stravinsky was already famous, or maybe I should say infamous in Paris, because he had staged a few years earlier his very famous ballet, The Rite of Spring, which literally sent audiences into a frenzy. And I'm not exaggerating when I I said this. Apparently for the opening, they were screaming and bellowing and fainting and hurled things at the orchestra. It was so loud that the dancers couldn't even hear the music to dance. It was so new and shocking. It premiered at the Théâtre de Champs-Élysées on the 29th of May, 1913. And if you're thinking, oh, right of spring, that sounds like flowers and rabbits. Well, sadly not. It was about a sort of primitive ritual which celebrates the advent of spring in which a young girl is chosen as a sacrificial victim and then dances herself to death. Seven years later, Coco met Stravinsky and they started an affair and she was very financially comfortable compared with the struggling composer. So she kindly let him move into her house and she moved over to the Ritz Hotel and he restaged another version of The Rite of Spring, although this time it didn't cause such shockwaves in Paris. But, you know, she was a great lover of the arts and supported a number of artists, even though sometimes people say she was quite a greedy woman. Ultimately, things didn't work out with her and Stravinsky, and she moved on to someone else, none other than the Russian Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, the grandson of Tsar Alexander II of Russia and first cousin of recently executed Tsar Nicholas II, and also the cousin of Prince Philip. Duke of Edinburgh. He certainly had connections. I mean, if the Tsars had been reinstated, he would kind of be in line for the throne. Um, He also took part in the assassination of none other than Rasputin. I can only imagine the stories he had to tell. Needless to say, things didn't work out with Dimitri and she moved on. In 1931, she met Paul Iribe and she started another affair. Chanel never got married, but she didn't seem to care about having affairs with married men. It turned into something much more serious, though, and they had, by all accounts, a very close and passionate relationship, and they would actually go on to collaborate professionally. Irib was a designer and illustrator, and he also designed jewellery, which was something 
Chanel herself had become involved with. Now, traditionally, jewellery had been something of family heirlooms, you know, especially for the wealthy, which is who Chanel worked with. And, you know, you might change your outfit, but your jewellery would normally stay the same. So... Of course, Chanel got involved and revolutionised this. She started a range of what the French call bijoux fantasy, or we call costume jewellery, which were affordable pieces that you could change to complement your outfit. And of course, it was a big hit. It seems that everything she touched turned to gold. And while she made costume jewellery a la mode for her clients, she bought for herself very expensive and, of course, elegant pieces, a string of pearls she apparently spent an absolute fortune on. But remember, don't overdo it. In the words of Chanel herself, quote, before you leave the house, look in the mirror and take one thing off. Since we're talking about the things that she revolutionised, let's take a quick pause to mention the all-famous and everlasting LBD. Now, ladies, I don't need to tell you what LBD stands for. It is, of course, the little black dress. Let's have another quote from Chanel. Quote, dress shabbily and they remember the dress. Dress impeccably and they remember the woman. The LB dress is, of course, a sort of versatile go-to outfit that you reach for in all situations. It's meant to be chic, but affordable and versatile. In 1926, Chanel published a picture of a short, simple black dress in American Vogue. Vogue called it Chanel's Ford and said that the LBD would become a sort of uniform for all women of taste, and they were right. It's certainly something that I have in my wardrobe, and I wouldn't wonder that most of you have in yours. It was most iconically worn, of course, by Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's, the ultimate Chanel figure in the ultimate Chanel look. Let's have one more quote, shall we? Chanel said, Women think of all colours except the absence of colour. I have said that black has it all, white too. Their beauty is absolute. It is the perfect harmony. Okay then. Right, let's get back to where we left off. Chanel and Paul. Now, Chanel may have admired Paul. She even hoped to marry him. And she held him in high esteem. And he, her, she in fact was his muse. There are a number of his illustrations which still exist, which feature Chanel in them. But he was quite an awful human. He had some strong anti-Semitic views and he published these in his paper Le Témoin, um, which you can still get hold of if you wanted to. They may have got married, but his untimely death saw an end to that. So once again personal tragedy, even though she's having lots of professional success. Chanel moves on and she has an affair with the Duke of Westminster, Hugh Richard Arthur Grosvenor, or Bender, to his friends. Just a note on Bender, he was incredibly wealthy, but sadly, another awful human. Like Paul Ebreed, he too had some terrible anti-Semitic and homophobic views. He wanted an heir, but by the time he met Chanel, she was already in her 40s. Now, there were rumours that she couldn't have children, and later in her life, she actually said that an abortion that went wrong in her 20s stopped her ever having them. There was even speculation that her nephew was indeed her son, but the truth of that we do not know. Ultimately, this brought their relationship to an end, but it did mean that she did meet some very important British people of the aristocracy, including Winston Churchill, who apparently liked her very much, which was both lucky and maybe unlucky for her. 
let's move on since we're talking about Churchill because Europe is on the brink of something awful. Yes, of course, it is the late 1930s and war is just around the corner. As you know, during the Second World War, Paris is occupied. Now, many people leave Paris. Chanel actually did in the beginning, but she returns to the Ritz, which was her home. Now, most of the big hotels in Paris were occupied. You know, they were taken over by the German soldiers, which was exactly what happened at the Ritz, but they nonetheless allowed her to stay in her suite. Now, during this time, she met and started a relationship with Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage. Recently, declassified files prove that Chanel went on to work with the Nazis. Her codename was Westminster and she was Agent F7124. She had a secret undercover mission, which they named Operation Model Hat. And this was given to her personally by Himmler, the man considered to be the architect of the Holocaust. Her job was to deliver a letter to her friend, Winston Churchill, to persuade him to end the war with Germany. Now, this mission failed and she was unable to meet him, but she wasn't bored. She was working with the Nazis. She wasn't just hanging out with them, living with them and dating them. She was doing their bidding. Now, during this time as well, we mentioned in our last episode her attempt to gain back control of number five, um, and it speaks to her personality. She looks out for herself, she turns situations to her advantage, she's an opportunist, traits shared by many a successful business leader, but it seems that she had taken on board some of those anti-Semitic feelings of her past lovers, and of the time, to be honest. There's even speculation that she didn't only try to gain back full ownership of her company, but took advantage in other ways. In 2012, the Ritz closed for renovations for the first time since it had opened in 1898, and all the furniture and valuables of the hotel were put into storage in a secret location. But before the hotel's contents were removed, a large-scale inventory was conducted. When the team began taking stock in the opulent suite of Coco Chanel, where the designer had called home for 37 years until her death, a painting in the drawing room caught the attention of the hotel's art advisor, Joseph Friedman. Quote, When I saw the painting in the suite, I had to take a step back. It had a very powerful impact. The use of colour and the movement are remarkable. It was clearly the work of a major 17th century French master. End quote. Friedman's colleagues found the initials CLBF and a date 1647, but the mysterious tableau depicting the ritual slaying of a Trojan princess had no record of purchase or installation in the Ritz's archive, even though it had been hanging in Chanel's suites for decades. The painting was later identified by Olivier Lefebvre, a specialist in 17th century French art at Christie's. Quote, I thought it was a Le Brun straight away, he said. It was very well preserved. It was really quite moving. And indeed, the initials stand for Charles Le Brun Fessite, Charles Le Brun being a dominant figure in the 17th century French art world. If you know anything about Louis XIV, I'm sure you've heard his name. And he was declared one of the greatest French artists of all time. The embarrassing lack of records as to its provenance means that we do not know how it got there, but it is possible that Chanel herself could have bought it quietly during the German occupation of Paris through her relationship with the Nazis, who were notorious for looting valuable art collections belonging to wealthy French Jewish families as well as museums. 
The painting was ultimately auctioned at Christie's for 1.4 million euros, more than double the estimated price, and the money raised went to a foundation established by Mohammed Al-Fayed, who is, of course, the owner of the Ritz and who set up the charitable foundation in memory of his son Dodi, the late boyfriend of Princess Diana. And I'm sure you know that they dined together at the Ritz just before their fatal crash in 1997. Today, you can see the painting in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Now, do we know that the painting was looted? We do not. But it's possible. And again, it makes us wonder as to Chanel's morals. So following World War II, any horizontal collaborators, as women who slept with German officers were known, were often publicly humiliated, they had their heads shaved, they were paraded through the streets, and that is a whole episode in itself. But this never happened to Chanel. She was arrested and we know that she did a great campaign giving out her Chanel number five bottles, but she was quickly released. Now, some people think it might have been Churchill who helped to save her, although one wonders he was surely quite busy at this time. But she was released quite quickly. Her head was not shaved. She wasn't humiliated. And she decided following her release to head off to Switzerland. And that's where she stayed for eight years. And that was probably quite a good idea. Now, in the space that Chanel left in the fashion world of Paris, who should step into her trendy little shoes? Of course, it was Dior. Now, Dior is a very different type of designer to Chanel. Remember, this is post-war as well. And there's this feeling of like, oh, the war is over. But Dior is famous for these big, padded outfits, these artificial looks, these corsets. It was the opposite of everything Chanel stood for. And after eight years, she couldn't take it anymore. She was horrified and she returns back to Paris. So at 71, she comes back and she launches a new collection at 71. Well, of course, the fashion world could not wait. But it didn't go down that well in Paris. I think people were pretty disappointed. In fact, the Parisians were very disappointed. They were not impressed with her collection. However, the editor of American Vogue did like it and chose a few pieces, three pieces to feature in American Vogue. And in fact, actually, once again, it was a triumph and everyone realises that Chanel is amazing. She chose three outfits. One of them was a dress and one of them was that classic little navy suit, you know. So it ends up being a huge hit in America. And it's true, Chanel is famous in Paris, around the world, and of course in America. Can anyone forget the elegant yet tragic image of Jackie Kennedy, who actually wore that pink Chanel suit on the day of her husband's assassination? Now, Chanel may have been an icon, but towards the end of her life, she was quite lonely and she lived alone in the Ritz and she became increasingly bewildered with age. To combat the pain from a ski accident that she'd had many years earlier, she'd been prescribed morphine, which was normal at the time, but it did create a lifelong addiction for her. In her old age, she would sometimes sleepwalk, and this resulted in her sometimes hurting herself. One night, apparently the story goes, she turned to her maid and she said, you know, I'm very, very tired. I need to lie down. And she lay down fully dressed and her nurse gave her her shot of morphine, as she usually did. And she turned to her and said, so this is how one dies. And these were her last words. She died at the age of 87 years old. Her funeral was held at the Madeleine Church, which is just around the corner from the Ritz. And of course, everyone in the fashion world attended, even those people who she'd insulted, which was 
I think a lot of them, to be honest. But you see, they recognised her as an icon of fashion. You know, she had been working at the top of her game for decades. And so they all came to pay their respects. The first row was for her models, who I think had very much a love-hate relationship with her because she was very hard to work with. You know, she famously would dress her models. She wouldn't work from drawings or cuttings. She would drape the fabric on them. And so, you know, she had this quite close relationship with them. And they made her this beautiful floral array in the shape of scissors. And these were something that Chanel always had on her, her scissors. So this was very much a a symbol which we associated with her. And so they laid this floral arrangement on her coffin, but she was ultimately buried in Switzerland at her request because she said, you know, the French didn't like her very much. And she designed her own gravestone because of course she did. And that is the long and complicated and interesting and fantastic and fabulous, but also sort of sad and lonely and kind of dark at times life of Coco Chanel. I learnt so much about her life. I I can't imagine what it must have been like to see Paris change from all those years and to be just right at the centre of it. It really must have been very exciting. But we will leave her there Uh, for now. I am hoping to make a video to go along with this episode to see a little bit of Paris and a little bit of Chanel and I'm going to put that up on Patreon so if you would like to support the show head on over to Patreon you can become a member there's extra episodes if Patreon's not for you then tell a friend or leave a review I love it and thank you as ever to Christopher for all your help and support it means the world to me that's it for now take care of yourselves bye bye